0: Well, I wonder if you've ever wanted to start over with something or even had the opportunity to start fresh. You know, New Year's is coming up. How many of us will think about the 365 days ahead and go, okay, what do I want to do now? Or maybe every Monday to you is not necessarily a misery in the office, but you go, okay, how can I, how can I refresh this new week? How can I have a, a big new week for the Lord or my friends or, or even a relationship Maybe you've had that that convo where you just say, you know what, let's let's start the conversation over. Sorry, let's start over. Maybe you're filled with regret from high school or college or your younger years, and you might even tell people, you know, if I could do this all over again, here's what I would do. Our passage this morning from the book of Genesis actually shows how Noah, the person of Noah and the family of Noah, kind of got to start everything over everything was fresh to them but imagine the intensity that would come alongside them the the glory think in their mind the glory of embarking from a giant boat into a world where everything was new that the slate is completely clean you're 600 years old you're wise you're known as godly You've got a family that trusts you, they have to now, and nothing can stop you. Everything is in front of you. Life is just on your front door. The story of the Bible is, to some degree, a a portrayal of new beginnings for God's people. And this passage, in some way, is the second major beginning. Because in the beginning, God made everything good and then placed mankind in it. Mankind quickly made everything not good, and so God started over with his creation and mankind where he completely wiped away everything except a righteous man in his family, a new beginning. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we went through all of the flood that Noah encountered, all of the building of the ark, all of the water that spilled everywhere, and yet we see that Noah was delivered and his family was delivered and he was told in many ways to do what Adam was supposed to do, fill the earth with glory reflectors. Now, if you got to start all over, how would you do? I hope this morning you'll see from this text an overarching theme from this author. The the Bible, for, for all of us who, maybe you're new here, but for all of us who are regular, we want to go through the Bible sequentially, what's called maybe expositional preaching or expository preaching, where we want to go through major parts of The book, through its chapters, through its book, through its passages, because we see here that all of the authors have something intentional in mind when we write these very words. These are not just collections of stories or even wise sayings or good advice given, but the the author here, Moses, actually gives us this overarching theme as Noah and his compadres embark from the ark. There's something intentional were the people of God who would have received this word. Remember, Moses was actually writing to people in mind about something that had happened long ago. They would have received this word, this text, this message amid their own suffering and anguish. They would have been encountering something that would have been very hostile to their lives. And so Moses gives them a picture of what God did for his people through the person of Noah, wishing they could start all over again. If they had everything wiped away, how could they live a refreshed life? So what does God give them? Amazingly, if you think about this passage in its context as a whole, what God gives them through this oracle from Noah is actually, amazingly, encouragement. After a devastating flood, after everything was wiped away, even in the midst of their own suffering and anguish, God gives them encouragement. And what I mean by that is God's people, even through their own turmoil and tribulation, put yourself in their mind, and maybe some of you, you are living in that situation, through turmoil and turbulation, tribulation, tribulation, <laughs> God has given them encouragement to look beyond themselves and their circumstances for true deliverance. God is giving them encouragement to look beyond themselves and beyond even their own circumstances for true deliverance that can only come through him. And I want to, I think this text unfolds itself in five ways, both uh, bit by bit or a couple verses by a couple of verses, but I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here until you first understand the greatness of Noah. Keep Noah in mind. Noah was great. Look at verses 18 through 19, where the sons of Noah have gone out from the boat. So you can imagine the, you know, the gate comes down and they go out and they've got a good head start. And what I mean by that is their dad, who they'd come from, Noah, was great. A great tree. Surely these apples would have stayed close to the tree, and surely because of their dad, they would have been fine apples too. And we think about this all the time. We think about the lineage of Noah has to be great because Noah was great. Maybe your daughter meets a young man, and you're encouraged because you hear he's got good, hard-working parents. You know, he's 18, but maybe if he's a lot like his parents, that'd be great. You know, we'd love that. Let's combine that. Or maybe your sister won't stop calling this guy that annoys you. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's a great guy, comes from a good family, good lineage. Maybe this will all work out. So when we see these sons coming out from the boat, we have to have that that lens or that framework in mind that, that here comes this triumphant family who God has provided for, where the harshness of the flood and the ark are all behind them. In a way, Moses here slows down the tempo. So two weeks ago, we took, what, four chapters in one message. Now we're going to take just a couple of verses and see how Moses intentionally slows down the pace and zooms in to take in all the sweetness of this new beginning and what it has to offer, where a sacrifice was given by Noah immediately. A good dad is shown for us. And along even with his wives, you can imagine the Christmas card that they would have sent out. Sure, everything's wet, but... Look at us. We're happy. We're good. The author of Hebrews calls Noah a man of faith. Wouldn't that be something? A man of faith. Moses, the author of this text, calls Noah blameless compared to his own generation. And that he walked with God another way. How amazing would that be? Moses said that he that, that Noah did all that God commanded. I received a couple of texts and emails from. Some of you all uh, in just encountering the text about Noah where God told Noah to do something and Noah continued to obey the Lord for a hundred years before the promise of what God would actually give to when Noah actually happened. And, and they were just remarking, I, I don't even trust God all day. I freak out at the end of the day. I hate going to bed because I'm panicking. Yet this guy for a century is trusting in the Lord. He did all that God commanded. So how would his restart plan pan out. How would Noah's post-voyage and deliverance work out? We, We immediately find out here. We find out exactly what his restart looks like. You can imagine this happening on like January 1st or 2nd in that qualifying calendar of my new 2023. Look at verses 20 through 21. I'll read them out loud. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank wine, and became drunk And lay uncovered in his tent. Really starts out going somewhere and really goes somewhere unanticipated, doesn't it? There, almost right after this glorious embarkment of newness, we see Noah's sins. And this exposes Noah from the inside. But, friend, I think this passage also is clear, and that is not just a lesson about Noah as if we're writing his biography, but this is where the text actually starts to look like a mirror to us. This, this text actually exposes you in the same way that it exposed Noah. So Moses gives us a warning through the person of Noah here. So I want you to see secondly, if you're using an outline provided in the bulletin, in the midst of encouraging God's people, Moses has us see Noah and be warned of not only Noah's heart, but our natural heart. So I want you to see the warning of Noah's sin. You might just think that this is randomly here or just another guy who's fallen. Remember, if you start with the beginning of the Bible, there's this A glorious tracing of giants, if you will, will this guy pan out? Because there's a promise in Genesis 3 that says the the seed of the woman will come and conquer the seed of the serpent or the seed of the man. And so, man, Adam shows up, he doesn't do well. Oh, maybe Noah shows up, he doesn't do well, or on and on. Maybe it's David, or maybe it's Jeremiah, on and on until we actually see who was coming. But through all of this, we see who we really are through these men. Noah was blameless, righteous, rescued. And yet we see him here near blacked out, drunk in his own tent. Now some think, some commentators think that Noah did this by accident. Uh, One commentator said that he was ignorant of the fiery nature of wine. You know, you might imagine a a 15-year-old embarking on something that he shouldn't, not knowing how bad it would be. But in reality, uh, remember, Noah, Noah was old. And certainly that is not a derogatory thing. He was an aged man. Who would have understood aged wine? He was over 600 years old, and this was a decent amount of time since the flood, recognizing, look at the truth that it was there, that he planted a vineyard. Vineyards take a long time to grow and to start, yet he grew it. He was a seasoned farmer. This wasn't his first attempt on the field with a combine. He didn't know how to drive. He knew what wine can do. He knew what was happening before him. And my point is this. When you think of this in his encountering of this sin, he's not an innocent bystander of his own sin. He's not an innocent bystander of his own sin. Look at verse 21. It says that he laid uncovered. Now the Hebrew here uh, for these verbs are reflexive, which means not that he lay uncovered but that he actually uncovered himself. Meaning he was so intoxicated that he stripped himself naked and passed out. So guys, this wasn't an old man having a drink, a nightcap, and then crawls into his bed, taking his boots off. And the emphasis behind this text is that though he uncovered himself spiritually, what we, what we see here is that he actually did cover himself with his own shame, and he brought himself disgrace on his own life through his own actions. Now I want you to take a big step back from this text. You're just reading this maybe for the first time, and you're like, creation looks awesome, Adam and Eve, well, you know, they seem cool, Noah, big flood, he embarks, gets drunk off wine. What what is Moses writing for us here? What's the author doing here? Is this a lesson about alcohol? No. Is this a lesson about clothes? No. Is this a lesson about family values or how you might go on a boat or go off of a boat? No. What's the author showcasing here? I want you to think of it this way. Evil had flooded the earth. And so God floods the earth with wrath to wipe away all circumstantial evil while still preserving one man and that one man's family. So when, when this man is able to start over without pagan societies, evil circumstances, feudal creation, man is allowed to start over with nothing that may cause to trip him up. Man is just left with himself. And so what does man do when he's left to himself? What does man naturally do when he's left to himself? What is our natural inclination? Sin. You see that? This is, this, is a, this is a fresh start with fine produce and even good work. Working in the vineyard, what does man do initially? Man sins. And so in a new world and right off the bat, sin is alive through the personhood of people. The thing that now is continually common through this lineage, though called great, is still an issue of the heart. Noah's sin came from Noah. It came from the personhood of himself. This sin did not come from, you might think, bad trees, like at the very beginning, or bad cities, like we see happening all the time. Maybe even bad friends. What what causes you to sin? Those guys. I was just following them. Maybe bad opportunities. You didn't have all these righteous opportunities in front of you. Maybe... It was something that you were told to do or not told to do. Sin didn't come from this man's pursuit of a certain kind of music or other kind of music. It wasn't caused by women wearing pants in church. Not that that's ever been an issue in society today. It didn't come from him going to public school or private school or maybe even sending his kid to a particular school. It wasn't based on the education that he had or even the government that was tripping him up. No, Noah's sin came from noah the wine wasn't sinful wine is talked about all over the place in scripture as something that is given to mankind for a delight though it can be abused just like anything else and what does man do with something that seems to be very good throughout the rest of scripture he sins so i want you to think of it in this way if you went home today and went into your house and said i I want to get rid of every ounce of evil in this house Maybe even do like a prayer walk around the house and in every room and and write, you know, scripture verses on the door above you, and you want to get rid of every ounce of evil in that house, you would actually, honestly, biblically, have to eradicate yourself from that house. I want you to think properly about this when you see that God deemed Noah as righteous. I need you to not think about um, how great Noah made himself. When you think about how God deemed Noah as righteous, I need you to not think highly of Noah. I actually need you to think highly of God and God's grace poured out on Noah's life. I need you to think highly of God in this circumstance. Noah's righteousness was not self-generated. It was not the fruit of his own heart. When, When his heart saw fruit, what did it pursue? It pursued own sin that came from within him. So we recognize this just kind of doctrinally, practically, theologically. Grace is not the fruit of work or self-initiation. Grace is not the the produce of what happens in your own heart. Grace is actually only seen as being imputed to you, being brought in to you. do you think about grace in the context of of a phone with a dead battery, how useful is a phone with a dead battery? It's not, maybe a paperweight, but it's actually not that useful. How will that phone come alive? Will that phone look inside itself and say, dear battery, start, charge, get more, or will help need to come from outside of it? The basic premise of the gospel message is that you and I are prone to think that that our problems are out there and our solution is with inside us. But the gospel message, the, the true reality of what the scripture regularly portrays is that all of our problems actually come from within and we need an outward solution to help us, to guide us, or to make us come alive, is what it says in the New Testament and the Old Testament. This helpless, drunk, fallen, unconscious in his tent is, as, is a significant warning to us, and it's as significant of a warning as the flood. Noah could not make it on his own. He needed instruction to build an ark. He needed provision of how to build the ark, and he still needs daily guidance and grace even as he lives. Left to himself, well, he uncovers himself. He needed help from beyond himself. He needed God's grace. Now, the application of this seems endless to you and me, but let me just put it like this. Parents, I'll, I'll give two categories here. Parents, to pick on you, you will be tempted to bypass your child's heart condition. So think of, think of your child and their heart. You'll be tempted to, to bypass their heart's condition by aiming to provide circumstances around them, before them, behind them, that will hopefully make their heart come alive or make their heart be righteous. You'll think of if they only had different friends, if they were only at a different school, if they only memorized more Bible verses, then this dead soul can come alive. But really, we see throughout all of Scripture that that they need an invasion from the outside. And may that be your prayer. Go to the God who can grant this. Go to the God who can guide Noah through the flood in the same way that he can guide your kids. Or you think about those of you who are stuck in the sin of pornography. You will be tempted to bypass your heart's condition and head straight to your circumstances. You'll be tempted to say, if I only got a flip phone, that will keep me away from my heart's lust. If I only leave doors open, then that will keep me away from pursuing something that is not mine. But but actual sin cannot be, think of it this way, actual sin cannot be painted over. It cannot be adjusted. It can't be sanded down. It can't be refined or even retrofitted like you would remodel a house. You have two options in these two categories. You have two options with your sin. You either kill the sin with the majesty and power of Christ, or it will kill you. Now, sin can't be eradicated through, uh, you know, maybe what all of us learned in ninth grade biology through osmosis. How many of us heard about osmosis? Maybe went home and slept with our geometry book underneath our pillow. Maybe it would just come into our mind. We all realize how foolish that is, but we do that with our hearts all the time. We we picture ourselves as like a flower, and we're just circumstantially planted around weeds. If we were just planted around other flowers, then we would bloom like we're supposed to. But friend, have have an honest opinion of yourself. None of us are as beautiful as we think we are. The Bible portrays us with words like broken or sinful. And what we need is an invasion of someone to, to scoop us up from this weed bed and make us into something that he deems and calls beautiful. Now, here's what I think this text meets you and me face to face. It's where we let it saturate its truth over our heart. Like previous texts have clearly shown, man is by nature depraved or called a sinner. Kevin brilliantly exposited Romans last week showing that we are at our root sinners, but God through his grace makes us alive. So you being in a good school will not make you more righteous. You having different parents will not make you more righteous. You moving away from town or to a new neighborhood in town will not make you more righteous. Righteousness doesn't come through osmosis righteousness only comes through imputation so Noah's fall from grace is written to make you and me wise we're to receive this warning and it's not a warning of circumstances but it's a warning of our own soul outside of Christ and our souls need for the grace of God to lift us up to hold us in his grip and to keep us as his finished work and he certainly will But we see, as this text continues on, we see that there's not only a warning given to us in Noah's circumstances, but also a warning given to us through Noah's differing sons. Remember his sons as they came out of the boat where sin is alive and well. We see this through Noah's life. And it wasn't just Noah, but also we see even after that, these crown princes of the new king are sinful too. Look at verses 22 through 23 where it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, Ham was the son saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, two other brothers, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father with their faces and turned backward to where they did not see their father's nakedness. Let me just kind of give you two categories. You have two categories of brothers here. Ham and the other ones. Let me just talk about Ham. Ham sees his father's sin and perversely takes delight in it. He likes it. He finds joy in it. He delights in his dad's fall. Maybe dad had told too many bad jokes on the boat of those long times and he was waiting to get back at him. Or maybe he had the same root in his heart just like his father. He's perverted and wanting others to see his naked dad. He sees his dad and he goes out and gathers other people in a state of mockery and ridicule, defaming his father. He further uncovered his dad's body And sin to others, he brought them what was covered. The second category, the two other brothers, Shem and Japheth, these two sons covered up their dad with a garment. They literally covered him up. And Moses takes great care to show the brothers didn't see their dad in the shame. I think it's important to carefully note the the monumental spiritual implications here of their covering of their dad. This is this is given to us on purpose. If anything you learn from the Bible, it's that the guys who wrote it were very good at writing the scriptures. They took great care. Why were so many words used and demonstrated and shown that they were covering their dad in a certain way? Remember the Bible, the beginning of the Bible where Adam and Eve fell. What happened after they fell? When they emerged after God called after them, it says that the Lord made for them garments of skins and clothed them. You see this kind of pattern all over again where God wants to show us his... Redemptive purpose and power through repeated actions. The Lord made for them garments of skins and clothed them. Noah's sons now covered Noah's sin and his own nakedness. And by this, I think it's important to note the division of Noah's offspring. I think what Moses is aiming to do is—you remember at the very beginning where Adam and Eve, their offspring would be on the side of heaven or hell, good or evil, the seed of the woman or the seed of the man. Here we have—we have another. Funnel or another point, another kink in the hose, and it starts all over again. where through this man, now their sons would divide yet again, either on one side with evil and bringing on a shame, or the other side, the side of God's actions and what looks like a replication of God's own work. Ham on the one hand, and Shem and Japheth on the other represent two groups of mankind: those who are by God's grace have their sins covered, and those like an accusation of the serpent, lie shamelessly, proudly exposed. We see the work of the devil here through the person of Ham who would want nothing more than to remind you and expose you of your own sin. Not a great friend. Not a great son. And then we have the case doing the work of the Lord in many ways, wanting to cover the wrongness of what has happened. Now, what's the warning of this? I think the warning of this to us is that humanity then and still is divided. It's either covered by grace or exposed for sin. Either covered by grace or exposed for sin. The warning should drive you to seek the covering that only comes from the outside of you. Notice how the two sons didn't find, you know, a blanket within Noah's chest and say, oh, what a great starter pack. We knew this would happen. Now we can cover you with this. The, the, the grace of covering up the shame again came from the outside and was placed over him. The warning should drive us to seek this kind of covering. And it doesn't come from within. The Bible says that only the robes of the righteous son of God can actually provide us with true hope in a way that this testimony and this case study only gives us a glimmer of. So when you and I think of our sin and we recognize that we are exposed to our God and to a watching world, The Bible is clear that only the righteous robes of God are worthy and capable of actually covering up our sins so that God looks at us with a delight. I want you to turn to the book of Psalms if you're new to the Bible. Flip to the right, kind of towards the middle, middle left. Book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. You might know this. You might have seen this. This isn't going to blow your minds away, but I I want your face on it. I want your heart to melt to it. I want you just to see it for what it is, where it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Language here is the same in the Hebrew. In the same way that these two sons covered their dad's iniquity, It is through the the death and the resurrection of God's Son of which man's sin can be covered. So I think there's a warning here for us about Noah, and I think there's a warning here for us about his son's actions. But then we see in this text this this response from Noah. So fourthly, if you're using an outline, we see these, these promises, or what are called oracles, these promises from Noah. Now what's amazing about this is you might have in your mind a biography Of Noah you might have even drawn pictures of him maybe as you were kids or maybe even your kids have like a you know super book coloring type thing or drawing deal and and what does Noah look like to you what does Noah sound like to you what are the things that Noah would say how would he talk to the animals when they come on the boat you actually have no idea about that because these are the very first words of Noah given to us in the scriptures and they're the last this is what Noah has said. This is what Noah has given to a watching world. In verses 24 through 27, we find what is called the first prophecy in the Bible. This is the first prophetic words given through the lips of man. Noah is called by God as a prophet, and what prophets do is they speak in the Old Testament words that will come true later on. And so this prophecy begins, in our case, with a curse and then with a blessing. So look at it with me, look at verses 24 through 25, kind of gaze at him with your eyes. In verse 24, we're told that Noah knew what had happened to him. We don't know how he knew what had happened, but he knew what happened. And in verse 25, he responds with his own reaction, with a curse to his own son's offspring. But, I, but I, what I want you to understand, I want you to understand that, that this is not Noah simply responding in a knee-jerk reaction and anger, in, in a vindictive attitude towards Ham. He wasn't lashing out. This is Noah speaking prophetically. It's like the the words of the Lord were channeling through and coming through his mouth. And that's seen by the fact that Noah does not lash out at him. He just speaks. The curse of Canaan, Noah says, will be the curse that Canaan, the son of Ham, so going towards his grandson, will be the very lowliest of the servants of Shem and Japheth. So with a curse, he's saying your grandsons, their people will actually serve the other sons. Ham is the one who sinned, so why would Noah curse his own son? Why would Canaan, the son of Ham, be cursed if it was Ham who sinned against him? Well, I think there are three ways to look at this. There are three answers to that question. First, I want you to notice that Ham reproached his father. So in an ironic and same way, Ham's son will bear reproach in Ham's own sin. So Ham sinned against his father. His own son will sin against him. And there's, certain, there's a certain kind of irony that's appropriate with this punishment. One, one commentator says, Derek Kidner says, for his breach of family, his own family will falter, and there's a, a certain appropriateness about this punishment. And that's not all that there is to say. This curse of Canaan, Canaan was an anticipation of Canaan's own sin. So you think of Canaan not as a I want you to think of him not as just a grandson, but as kind of a founder of a people group, the Canaanites, as they would later be called. And if you know your Bibles, beginning in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. There, Moses is delivering this message to a people who know who the Canaanites are. And they don't like who the Canaanites are. And their job, as Israelites, is to drive out the Canaanites. They know they've been waiting in Egypt for 400-something years because the sin of the Amorite was not yet complete. But Genesis 15, verse 16, says, In the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is yet not complete. Where God initiates... To Abram, that there is one of many reasons that the children of Israel will be enslaved so long in Egypt and he is allowing the Canaanites an opportunity to repent from their sins. They want and so will bring children of Israel out of Egypt and he will judge the Canaanites in part by driving them out of their land. And so Moses tells us about the curse of Canaan, this curse in this passage, this curse is an anticipation of precisely the sin of the descendants of Canaan. And it's interesting that the pattern of Canaan's worship are actually similar to the sins of Canaan's own father's hands. The Canaanite religion as it's accounted for in the scriptures included things like child sacrifice, idolatry, ritual, sexual prostitution, and ongoing acts of anti-god living. There was a pattern of life that had been established in Canaan, and we see here how the effects come through this family, where sin not only ruins this relationship, but it will continue to ruin on this family altogether. Now, one one other thing in this part before we move on, I want to tell you God's grace is revealed even through this curse. God could have rightly cursed Ham and all of his descendants, but he actually singles out that curse upon Canaan. So Ham, think of it this way, I know this is a lot, but you all do trigonometry, so I know you can handle this, okay? So we have Ham, who had a kid named Canaan, Ham didn't have just one child, he had others. So we see God's grace in this in that He didn't punish the entire ascendancy of Canaan or of Ham, but there were others who God would show His grace to. God could have rightly cursed Ham and all of his descendants, but he singles out that curse upon Canaan. And in that we see God's grace, where God spares some of the descendants of Ham. Only the Canaanites are cursed. Not all the Hamites are cursed. Shem is blessed. And he's blessed in the name of the Lord. And in this verse and in verse 26 suggests that Shem is already himself a part of the covenant of which God will deem glorious and his own. So let me just say in passing here that there is no, I realize I'm getting really hyped about this and I know that none of you care, but let me, let me encourage you to care. There is a partial showing of God's rightful judgment on this person because of his sins. And there is also granted grace on this person who still didn't deserve God's grace here. In passing, there's no direct fulfillment of this blessing on Japheth to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. It'll have to come in the New Testament where this this righteous granting of grace actually happened, where there is a blessing through Noah predicted here in the book of Genesis chapter 9 where it was fulfilled because in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 and the coming of the Gentiles into the people of God, we actually see this is where the Japhites come. And they have a seat at the table, where they're given something that they did not deserve. And they are brought into the line of promise by the actual works of Christ. You, you see here, you're going to look at things, and next week, if you're bored now, you will be bored next week. But lift your eyes to what the Lord says, where these things like lineages and offspring and, you know, I know what you're saying, it's borophil. It's not bore It is God redeeming his people in his particular way. And we see this fifth and finally. In a major shift where we go from death to life. You're going to look at the end of this and go, wow, look how Noah wound up. Dead, just like the others. So last thing as I close in verse 28 and 29, you see Noah's obituary. And it's the same obituary that we read over and over again in verse 5. Genesis chapter 5 and this passage in Genesis chapter 9 are separated by a long account of Noah's life. What a biography. And so the obituary for Noah, though, was written in the same pattern that we saw in Genesis 5. So-and-so lived, so-and-so had sons, so-and-so died. And in verse 21, we see that Noah dies, just like those before him. And the life of Noah ought to remind us, ought to remind you, of God's faithfulness, of the fallen human weakness, or toward fallen human weakness before temptation, and of the continuing curse of sin. But Noah's father... Had said, Remember that part. Noah's father had said that Noah would provide rest for his people. And in a sense, that came true. The rest that would have come through the person of Noah, the deliverance that God would have had in remaining faithful to the seed of the woman, Noah would be the one used by God to spare the world through the flood. But in totality, Noah would be unable to give us true rest because Noah sinned. His offspring sinned. We recognize here that in the coming attempts of what the Lord gives us through the New Testament, recognizing that the principality and power of the sinlessness and perfection of the Son is the only one who we can have hope in. You'd be a fool to worship Noah. You'd be a fool to worship Adam. You'd be a fool to worship Abraham. You'd be a fool to worship David. Why? Because there's nothing better than you. What makes you you? Like Noah, you're a sinner. What makes Noah Noah? Oh, he's a sinner. What makes Christ worthy of worship? He was sinless. And by his own sinless perfection, it is him who can fully provide rest for his people. So let me remind you of one thing in closing. Our Savior, think of it this way, got excited writing this. I need to find that excitement once again. Our Savior, if you think of his lineage and where he came from, it is amazing that the blood that flows through his veins in the same way that I might be part Cherokee and part Danish, the same blood that flows through my veins or through his veins was actually Canaanite. The curse by which he came, the blood that flowed through him, was Canaanite blood. The reminder that Christ can break the cycle of sin and misery is proved in the fact that he has Canaanite blood flowing through his veins. Rahab the harlot, the woman of Canaan, as replicated and reflected upon in the genealogies of the New Testament, now they're not so boring, are they, was the great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, even the Canaanites can re- be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who would come for them and be slaughtered on their behalf. That ultimate blessing came from the tents of Shem to the Gentiles through Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, offspring heirs according to this particular promise where rest would be given and today we recognize this as breaking down all boundaries around us it goes through the children of ham through the children of shim through the children of japheth with saving power where we recognize that the gospel that has been provided to us proclaimed to us from the word is something that is certainly not old or is certainly not new. Wow. It is certainly not new. It is very old. The unfolding of God's... I need that video clip where I just ruin everything. The unfolding of God's program of grace actually began with God's declaration to Adam and Eve where the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the man even as we recognize that those little seeds will fall off bit by bit until one is imputed to the world on their behalf. Friend, I hope you see the encouragement Moses gives us from this text. It is not just a random occurrence as how susceptible you might be to the world around you. There is encouragement here that God's people, even through toil and tribulation, can look beyond themselves and their circumstances for true deliverance. And our deliverance not only said He would come, but did come for us in the person of Christ. He, He is the ultimate covering of our sin. Where it says in the Scripture, He, the Lamb of God, is the one who takes away, or in the same language, uncovers the sins of the world. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you for our hope and our life in the midst of our death. We pray that you would build us up as we approach you regularly with truth from your word. Lord, we thank you for what your word says to us. We thank you for the warnings that it gives us. We thank you for the instruction that it gives us that you are the one who is not only promising amazing things, but has already shown your fulfillment and bringing that to us. Oh Lord, we are undeserving of your grace, but we delight in it fully. We pray that we would have lives that live in response with great joy and with great trust. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.